and we're ready to get started on our psalm series. We're looking at Psalm 39 this morning. If you're willing and able, would you please stand as we read this psalm together? Hear now the word of God. To the choir master, to Jejethun, a psalm of David, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my stress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths. My lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Silah. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I'm spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. This, friends, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. In the Christian life, there are kind of three different things that are concurrently going on. Think of it as a triangle and three different points of that triangle. So what should I, what should I believe, what should I do, and what should I feel? Now, in our reformedish world, a lot of times we get the first one really good. What do I believe? I know what I believe because I confess the Westminster Confession of Faith every Sunday morning, or I know the Apostles' Creed by heart. Or what do I do? Or what should I do? And there's some in, in Christianity, and realize Christianity, the capital C Church, is a very big 
tent. Trinity, and even this denomination, is a very small pea in a very big pot of stew. We have our distinctives. We're not like everyone else, but we do have a common confession, right? So whereas Reformed folks typically have a really good idea of what should I believe, maybe others, let's say Catholic types, are really good at what should I do. I thought it was a very interesting thing over the course of the past couple of weeks to see how both in tornado-devastated states like Missouri, tornado and flood-devastated states like Oklahoma, uh, the people out there handing out water and things like that, none of them were PCA people at first. Because they were, hey, you know what? We ought to do something. Great. What? I don't know. Well, how are we going to get water together? I don't know. What does the Westminster Confession say? I don't know. And there are others who, let's say, center on what should I feel? I think in many ways our Pentecostal brothers and sisters have us absolutely beat in this. Here's how I know. Well, not here I know. Here's one example of here I know. Here's how I know. As we worship, we sing together. There's a bunch of you that wants to raise your hand but feel awkward about it. Like, how should I feel? I should feel like I love Jesus enough to raise a hand. That feels awkward to some of us. Like, I really want to, but if I do it, then no one here knows what that means, and they think I'm asking a question. (laughs) So three areas, right? What should I believe? What should I do? How should I feel? We see that in Scripture as well. If you were to tell someone what they need to believe about Christianity for it to be, let's say, a saving faith, you'd probably tell them to go read Romans. This is why Campus Crusade created what's known as the Romans Road, to show people how to be saved. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is excellent at writing about what we need to believe. Or how about what should we do? you probably would point people to the gospel accounts and say, you see Jesus, except for all the miraculous type stuff, do what he does. Or maybe to Acts, do what the early church is doing. But let's ask the question, how should we feel? Where do we go in Scripture to talk about how should we feel? I think the only book, really, that satisfies that is the Psalms. Because the emotional range of the Psalms compared to the rest of Scripture is like the emotional range of Shakespeare compared to Winnie the Pooh. I do believe that in order to be an emotionally deep and emotionally self-aware Christian, our time in the Psalms must be long and deep. Because in the Psalms, what we have are prayers from people who are praying just brutally honest things. And we'll see this in a couple of weeks. And one of the psalmists is talking about dashing 
these other, they're enemies, babies against the rocks. The psalmist, the psalmist, uh, the psalms are full of just such things that if we give ourselves in a way to the psalms and allow them to engage us, we might find ourselves a little more confident in knowing how we should feel, okay? So I'm going to give you three things this morning as an outline, and it's really three movements in this psalm, three movements. Verses one through three is alone in our heads. Verses four through six is alone in our lives. And verses seven through 13 is alone in our wanderings. Throughout this entire psalm, the psalmist feels alone. And there's only inklings here or there where that's not the case. So alone in our heads, alone in our lives, alone in our wanderings. Let's start with alone in our heads in verses 1 through 3. Take a look at the text with me, if you would. Verse 1, it says, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked in my presence. The psalmist is really hesitant to vocalize a complaint that he has to God. And he's, he's so hesitant that he talks about putting a muzzle on his mouth. You might muzzle a horse. You might muzzle a dog. It's not common to muzzle a human. But he's talking about this, doing this, just so we won't utter a word. Why? Well, the text says there are some there that are present who don't know God. He didn't want to do it at the end of verse 1 because what he calls the wicked were present. Now, why, why should that be the case? Why would David, the psalmist, refrain from making a, compl- a complaint against God in the presence of evildoers? because he was well aware of how that complaint would be taken. God, I feel like you have crushed me. And his evildoer companions would say, not only does he crush you, he's abandoned you. He doesn't care for you. There is no God up there who desires your good and who works for your wholeness and completeness. See, the psalmist, he knows what their response is going to be, and he doesn't want to give in to what their answer might be. And this, this is the truth with you and me as well. Because all those things that I said, you have heard in your own head. Of course he's not for you. Of course he's not good to you. Of course he really doesn't care about your suffering because It's not changing. So David's in the same situation. And really, we can give him credit for this. He starts off with this imagery, right? Guard my ways. Guard my mouth as a muzzle. But how does it end? My heart became hot within me, verse 3. As I mused... The fire burn, and then I spoke. 
David finds himself in a situation that you and I find ourselves in constantly. His suffering here, why he's suffering, we don't know. The scriptures don't tell us. And it's difficult to tie this historically to anything in David's life. But he feels beat down by God, right? But he decides to restrain himself for a little bit. And then we see this, my heart became hot. He got heartburn. And as he mused, the fire burned, and then he spoke. Friends, this happens to us all the time, right? You're in a marriage. Your spouse loads the dishes in the dishwasher. They're wrong. Again, it makes no sense to load the dishwasher that way. I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to rearrange them the right way. Close it up. I'm not going to say anything. You go over. I thought he made the coffee too. The coffee's not made. I'm a good spouse. I'll make the coffee. Make the coffee. This is how you make coffee, by the way. I'm going to bridle my tongue. I'm going to put a muzzle on my mouth. You go. And you see... He came in from the yard, an Oklahoma yard, over the past month, which means there's mud tracks everywhere, all over the hardwood floor. And they culminate at the couch where he is sitting down with his muddy feet up on the coffee table watching WWE wrestling. And then you become like David. Your heart gets hot within you. The text says, as I mused, the fire burned, and so I had to speak with my tongue. Why can't you do the dishes right? Why can't you make the coffee when you're asked? Why do you have muddy tracks to this couch? Why are you watching wrestling? There are better things on. It burns within us. Friends, our strength is no more than David's. It burns, and here's the thing too, it builds. There's no indication for how long this took for David. I doubt it was five minutes, more likely months. So why does he lose his cool? Why does verse 3 actually happen? I believe it's because David feels utterly alone. He is surrounded by people who don't understand his God. And he feels like God is silent. And he, he felt alone in his head. Do you ever get that? You feel like, not only does no one understand me, like no one understands me even to the point that it's not even worth talking about it. Just feel alone in my head. And he wanted to be holy. That's how he started out. Guard my ways. Keep me from sinning with my tongue. And yet the coals of suffering were being poured upon his head. And just like every other redeemed sinner, he reached a breaking point. So, like David, we often feel alone 
in our own head. And maybe just as often, we feel alone in our lives, alone in our lives. Look at verses 4 through 6. Verse 4, David says, O Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. He's got one request in this section, and it's simple. God, help me to know my deep mortality. Help me to know how deeply mortal I am. This is where I see something jiving very different with us. Could you imagine it? You go into a Trinity community group. Most of the time, it's kind of fun at first. You're eating, you're laughing, you're talking about whatever. Then you do your study. And at the end of it, you take prayer requests. Could you imagine being there in the company of a community group and having someone say, you know what? I've really been thinking about this. Would you guys pray for me? Would you pray that God makes me keenly aware of my mortality. That would be weird. My declaration of it being weird is not to discourage you from saying that. That's not a normal prayer request. And I would tend to think that that wouldn't be a normal prayer request in this time. Make me to know my end. Help me to know how my life is a vapor as he goes on to use language like that. Why would he pray that? It's such a strange thing to ask. Why would we, why would we pray that? Um, I don't know that I ever pray for strange things quite like that. I do pray, if I'm honest with you guys, I pray for Jesus' return fairly frequently. But I realized that behind that, 99% of the time, it comes from bad reasons, right? I really fear both of my children getting older and beginning to date. Like, I've had my guns ready for nine years. We're ready to go. I mean, I mowed the lawn yesterday. And we've had this stupid weed, that's an appropriate term for it, come up and it's kind of like a little tree and I try to kill it and I chop it off and I try to pull it and it pokes me. I said, Lord Jesus, if you come back, this weed will be no more. Please come back. I'm asking Jesus to come back because of weeds, guys. Right? Or even many of you have this kind of existential struggle Again, suffering in your life that's just ongoing or sin in your life that's just ongoing. Or we just want to see the world the way that it should be. I mean, maybe I'm getting more emotional as I get older. But I look at the floods. You see tornadoes just rip through towns. You see a disgruntled employee go and kill at least a dozen of his employees after working there for 20 years? It shouldn't be like this. This is not the way it was made to be. 
So why would David pray, Lord, help me to know my mortality? And I think it's this. David is praying this to expose the fatal inefficiency of everything in this world. By him praying this, David wants to expose the fatal inefficiency of everything in this world. So in one form or another, everything around us does not work as it should. I'll give you a simple example. For those of you who might like cars, do you know what the most efficient internal combustion is right now in a car? It's from a Formula One Mercedes. And so if you were to take all the high-octane gas and the special gas that they use and you put it into this Formula One engine and you say, all of this gas energy, I want you to produce the energy of moving the car. How efficient do you think that that might be? Maybe you get 90% out when you get in. 80? You barely get 50%. Like even physicists and mechanical engineers, there's, there's no efficiency on earth in any form or another. We long for a world where life works right, but we don't, but it doesn't. And so what we do is we feel alone. My job doesn't work right. And by the way, this happens in marriage. My spouse doesn't see me the way I want to be seen. My spouse doesn't see me how I actually am or we're just going through a funk, or whatever it may be. We often experience being alone in our heads, and we also experience being alone in our lives. But if we look at the last section of this, we also see David, as it is, alone in his wanderings. That is the very path of his life. Look at verse 10 with me. It says, remove your stroke from me. I'm spent by the hostility Of your hand. And then look down at verse 12. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest, like all my fathers. So, verse 10 remove your stroke from me. It means stop beating me down because I can't handle it anymore, because your hand seems hostile. Right? This is something similar to what Greg Roberts read earlier in Job 2. Shall we indeed accept good from the Lord and not accept adversity? And the scripture says, and all of this Job did not sin with his lips. Friends, sometimes our hardships not only feel like they're from God, they are from God. I remember one of the things that turned me off just speaking frankly to Christianity, in my high school years, was some of the things that I heard from my peers. I would say, well, what, I don't know, I was a smart aleck, and I can't think of an example right now, but what, what caused this great forest fire over here that killed lots and lots of people? And my Christian friend would say, well, you know, lightning or something like that. So, well, God, could God control that lightning? Well, you know, sometimes he just kind of lets things run their course. It's like, look, whoa, whoa, whoa. If he's God, really God, he, th- he can either stop it or start it or whatever, but he's God. 
Or if we take something like the flooding, even recently, a message that I've already heard from evangelical Christianity was, God doesn't like it to flood, and so it was probably something to do with sin. Like the sin of the people in Tulsa. Our collective sin. Which, I don't know what it is. Fried chicken. It could be any number of things. Like, no. Sometimes God either sins or allows destruction. And we have to deal with that. We don't like it. No one does. But we have to deal with it. And in our hearts, kind of be where Job is, he sends the good. And direct or indirect, the bad comes from him too. What are, what are we going to do? Can, if we're going to accept good for him from his hand, can we not accept his hand when it's suffering? The problem is, and the problem that David is wrestling with here, is that it seems pointless. That his suffering seems pointless. How do we deal with the fact that most of our suffering at the time does seem pointless? I mean, you get this if you're a small child and your parents ground you from screens or they make you stay in your room, and that seems pointless. And it goes all the way up to, let's say, curable cancer. The reason why we begin to question in our suffering is because we were made for sonship in eternity. We were made for sonship in eternity, and that's why the futility, the inefficiency of everything seems like a problem. For instance, the ant. Have you, ever got, have you guys ever just watched ants? They don't stop moving. Unless it's to let another ant in front of them, and they keep going. The ant never seems to have a problem with a nonstop life. You know, a bird is constantly looking for seeds or worms. So one of my favorite things to watch after mowing the yard, and the birds go out there and they go crazy. They go, like, oh, the seeds are loose. All the worms are close. And they're going, and you know what happens? They get up and do it the next day. After that, they get up and do it the next day. At no point does a bird say, all I do is look for seeds. This life is in vain. A bird never does that. Even if you take a primate, for instance, like a chimpanzee, a chimpanzee doesn't look at yet another banana and say, is this all life is? Yet another banana? No, he eats the banana, and there is no question. But yours and my suffering cause us to say, is this all life is? Is this all life is? Suffering, wandering on the earth until it's over? The reason we struggle is because of what C.S. Lewis has written about in his famous book, Mere Christianity. I'm going to read this from Lewis. The Christian says, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. People feel sexual desire. 
Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Our suffering, the psalm is teaching us, our suffering attunes our hearts to the fact that we were made for another world. That we were made for another world. He feels alone. Oftentimes you feel alone. But look at what happens. Here is a sneaky bit of hope poked in at the end of this psalm. Look at verse 12 with me. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. In other words, Lord, I'm weeping, and you're not giving me peace. Then he says, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. You know, there's a saying here. As if you're a Christian, you are a sojourner, but you have one who's with you. It may not feel like it. It may feel like his hand is turned against you. It may feel like he's working against you, but you have someone with you. If you're not a Christian, what does this mean? It means that you are utterly alone. And it's really a terrifying place to be, to be utterly alone, to know that all I see is all there is. But the Christian, in a way, unlike David, we can acknowledge that we are not alone, that he is with us, that he is for us, and that he wants to walk alongside us, friends in our suffering. So even though you know, the title of the sermon is The Lonely Wanderer, it's more of the lonely wanderer question mark. Because it's very possible for us in our lows, in our suffering, in, in the frustrations of the fall to go about as if we were alone. What the psalm is encouraging us to do is to go, go about as if we are not actually alone. John 16 says, Jesus is telling them, he says, I tell you the truth, friends. It is to your advantage that I leave. For I, if I do leave, I will send one to you, a helper. Friends, Jesus has given us a helper in this to point our eyes not merely to what we see in the suffering on the vertical, but point our eyes back to heaven to give us a taste of the new Jerusalem where things do work the way that they should, where suffering has ended, and where Jesus has conquered your sin and your death. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would enable us to have eyes like that, to not be overwhelmed, to recognize in all of this our frail humanity 
and to launch ourselves into the only hope, Jesus, our Savior, whose name we pray. Amen.